0: In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Ian Wickramasekra, burn Buddhist Practitioner and Associate Professor of Mindfulness-Based Transpersonal Counseling at Naropa University. We discuss how a violent childhood near-death experience propelled Ian onto the path of meditative exploration and how psychedelics played a part in unraveling deep-seated racial conditioning. We discuss how early encounters with men such as Glenn Mullen and Robin Kornman profoundly shaped Ian's contemplative and academic trajectories. Ian recounts his first meditation retreats with the Shambhala organization, his opinion on the Sakyam, and why he left that lineage. Ian also explores dualistic and non-dualistic epistemologies, the intersection of psychology and religion, and his academic work in the field of hypnosis. So without further ado, Dr. Ian Wickramasekra. Dr. Ian Wickramasekra, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, thank you so much. Yeah, you've had a very interesting life and career. And I'm reading here from your bio, Dr. Ian Wickramasekera has a lifelong fascination with topics such as effective neuroscience, biofeedback, bone Buddhism, empathy, hypnosis, lucid dreaming, mind-body medicine, and transpersonal psychology. His research into these areas has won him a number of awards. And then the bio goes on to list Quite a number of awards.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's good so, to have friends. <laughs> they nominate you for these things. <laughs> so I'm curious how it was you became interested in, in, in these topics and how that interest led to you having a career.
1: All right, yeah, boy, this is, goes way back. I don't know how way back you mind me going. So when I grew up as a child, Um, I had a number of very powerful uh, experiences. This, by the way, is my kitty. She named. (laughs) Uh, I had a number of very early, powerful uh, transpersonal experiences that sort of um, gave me some glimpses into kind of phenomena around the illusion of self and illusion of the world, or at least the way that we cling to it. Um, And so... Uh, one of the, probably, uh, the first one was sometime around, uh, I was like maybe in first grade, you know, and, uh, I had this, uh, dream where, oh, here's my kitty again. Uh, I had this dream where, um, I was on a, a steamboat. I don't know if you would know what this thing is, but they have these things, you know, in the olden times on the Mississippi, Illinois river, I grew up in a very rural part of Illinois, uh, and I I kept dreaming I was on this steamboat, you know, and it was going up and down the river, and uh, then an accident would occur while I was on this boat, and uh, I started to notice that I had the ability to change the dream so that I could save everyone on board the ship, and uh, somehow this magical vine would appear, and I would sort of ferry people over on this vine. And after a while, I realized that actually, this was a dream. I wasn't just playing in some kind of weird um, steamboat and vine, but actually I was dreaming and I started to become aware that I was dreaming. And I loved this and I started having, uh, that was probably the first lucid dream that I remember. But all of those lucid dreams really started to get me to understand uh, something uh, very powerful about the nature of uh, my mind and uh, my ability to be present, and that also uh, the the world had a kind of dreamlike quality to it. And I would say that almost everything that I'm involved with is sort of uh, involved with that kind of reflection on the dreamlike nature of self and the dreamlike nature of uh, reality. And uh, then after that, I had what what seemed at the time to be a very unfortunate experience. Uh, I was in third grade. And uh, uh, maybe I'll just tell a simple version of this story. Uh, These uh, three boys attempted to kill me. And uh, uh, it was for racist reasons. They kept calling me all these racist names. And then um, uh, they attacked me and uh uh strangled me uh to death actually and i left my body Uh, i remember the moment when i could not uh breathe and how how awful that was but then uh this really amazing thing happened which was that uh, suddenly i found myself out of my body and looking down at it and there are these two boys uh, strangling me and another boy was uh, laying on my chest to keep me down, and I was actually now floating above my body about 10 feet, you know, and I was looking down, and uh, that made me feel, you know, really upset and sad, you know, seeing what was happening, but within a few seconds, uh, I started to feel uh, that, wow, there's this whole wider world around me, you know, and it felt like uh, I could see forever. And I had this feeling of connection to the world uh, much, much further away. It felt like uh, connected to the universe kind of feeling. And the more that I uh, was in that space, uh, which probably wasn't really that long, but it felt like a long time, uh, I started to really kind of care less about what was happening with my body. But I did happen to notice that uh, my mother was on the other side of the fence uh, running with a broom. And then uh, she came into the yard and just beat the living daylights of uh, these two guys on I me mean, with the broom and knocked them off. You know, they're all kids my age. Uh, and then all of a sudden, <gasps> uh, my breath started again and I was back in my body again. Uh, and, you know, this was, you know, uh, could definitely be described as a traumatic experience. But, uh, it was very um, powerful because, again, I had been given this direct uh, experience that uh, uh, my way of experiencing the world and myself could be quite different. In fact, uh, the experience I could have an experience of myself without uh, having a body self, in particular, um, and also the sort of uh, uh, feeling of. Uh, you know, I don't normally think of it, right, as a feeling of disconnection to be myself. But that sort of gave me this insight that maybe, you know, this uh, kind of way of clinging to myself, you know, really uh, wasn't it. There was actually another way of experiencing things. And so um, those two things and, you know, some other things that happened here and there uh, really started to get me fascinated with all of the different, um uh, kind of transpersonal experiences that people can have and really made me want to study uh, in different religions and in different psychologies and uh, science ways of understanding this phenomena that now, you know, I knew like people talk about weird things, but uh, I couldn't say there was just craziness anymore because I'd had a very direct experience of it. Um, and I was very interested in it, and particularly, we know that children around that age often actually uh, peak in their ability to have transpersonal experiences. It's really kind of sad because uh, uh, if you look, uh, when people reach adulthood, uh, they're generally about a standard deviation lower <laughs> in uh, the in uh, hypnotic ability and uh, openness to experience. But at that time, I was in you know I was really Powerful to me, and so I continued, you know, to be uh, very interested in that and um, these kinds of phenomena, and wanting to know what could be done uh, so that I could learn more about these things. Uh, and um, then the story just branches out into a lot of different ways. Uh, definitely, one involving spirituality. Uh, one involving being a scientist and uh, then in the science branch there's you know kind of psychedelics there's uh hypnosis um, i think those are probably the two most important um oh, also meditation research as well and the spirituality uh branches uh, from kind of study of uh, christian mysticism and uh, gnosticism and uh, even uh, a little bit of the verboten uh, Aleister Crowley kind of stuff and uh, uh, and then really came to its uh, fulfillment in uh, uh, my practice of uh, Buddhism I Was really uh, what, where I find uh, a lot of things came to uh, kind of integration
0: um, so I don't know where should I go uh, <laughs> what would you think yeah Yeah, it's fascinating I think I'd love to explore both of those branches and in fact throughout your work those branches have intersected quite a bit including Mm -hmm. what I think is your most recent paper on Dzogchen and hypnosis comparing that so perhaps we could start with the spirituality your explorations there that sounded like Christian mysticism Gnosticism Alistair Crowley and (laughs) onwards so when when did that begin and how did that unfold so uh I grew up like in
1: rural Illinois, and we used to go to this Catholic church, you know, and uh, I had a very dualistic understanding of religion at this point, but I kept having these non-dualistic religious experiences, you know, and uh, my main complaint about being a Christian at this point was that I didn't seem to have enough to do, <laughs> you know, I was like I would, I would go to church. And there were these nice prayers. I particularly liked the prayer of Saint Francis of Assisi, and I liked um, I like all the things that people said they didn't like. I enjoyed like the kneeling. <laughs> I enjoyed the kneeling in particular, and you know recitation of prayers and things. I loved all those things. There was people would you know say they had just gone to confession, and they had been a bad boy and had to say you know, you know ten Hail Marys and all this and you know I don't know how many Our Fathers. And I was like glad to receive. I was like, I must have been very sinful. They gave me like five times as many as the other kids. Uh, but I enjoyed all of these things. What did you enjoy about them? I love the intensity of them. I, I really enjoyed the intensity of uh, kneeling and praying, and I really enjoyed uh, the the community part of it, where uh like it would, often when we'd sing the prayer of saint francis of assisi everyone would hold hands mm-hmm. and i started to get some of that feeling of um being at one with people uh in uh, sort of uh, hmm, uh feeling less uh aware of myself and really feeling i don't
0: know i don't know
1: if that's actually the right way of saying that but oh well um feeling like more uh less focus on and grasping on myself and more in enjoyment of being at one with everyone and feeling uh good goodness of uh love um and uh so yeah that's what i really enjoyed about that but in the end uh i just wondered like what are what do the monks do you know what are these monks doing and uh then I started studying what what do those monks do you know and started reading about uh, different uh, Christian mystics Uh, somewhere around uh, my teenage years I learned about uh, the cloud of unknowing and other uh, Christian mystical literature I love so much love that book still I feel like it's a awesome uh, book and so beautiful and that the author of that book is so humble that never signed their name to it you know it's just like the ultimate act of you know uh i don't know humility and uh mm, less uh, grasping i mean like wow it's a beautiful uh meditation manual i've even once read uh his holiness the dalai lama praising this book uh and yet, they really didn't sign the name, you know. As now no one knows who wrote, you know. Some say Hildegard of Bingen and all this, but no one really knows. And so I read these books and really started to make me feel like um, I wanted to be a part of such a tradition. But um, uh, it was pretty clear to me I didn't want to be a monk. <laughs> I did not, not at all. You know, uh, if, uh, one of the other things I research is sexuality, and I'm a fairly lusty person, to be quite honest. And uh, to me, it felt like uh, eh, just not my path. And, and also, it bugged me that uh, so much of the, the understanding of sexuality I was getting in uh, this kind of dualistic form of Christian uh, Catholicism was so sex negating, you know, uh, even to the point of like, uh, just my friends who were gay were s- supposed to be sinful. And when I thought about myself versus some of them, I thought this person is definitely <laughs> less sinful than me, just because they like a guy, this is means they're bad, you know, they're going to hell and all this. And um, so I just kept finding, uh, my mind was getting warped by this kind of dualistic uh, understanding of good and evil. Uh, And I found that it it kind of divided me into parts. Like, I I remember feeling seriously, uh, seriously worried that because I like to listen to heavy metal music, that I might be going to hell, you know. And sometimes I kind of even heightened my enjoyment of the metal. It's like you know, it was like oh, uh, Black Sabbath, oh, wonderful, you know, and, uh, Iron Maiden, oh my goodness, you know, and I go to those concerts and they'd have the devil up on stage and all of this, and they'd be like, oh man, I'm really going to hell now, you know. Uh, but then in my mind, this is this is a farce. You know? this is a farce. This can't be true. Like it why would there, you know, be some enlightened being that would, you know, send you to hell forever for being gay and for liking heavy metal music, you know, it's like, it didn't make any sense, you know, and uh, uh, so it became harder and harder uh, for me to kind of follow that, and then um, somewhere around, I guess I was 17 or 16, I started to really become interested in um the fact that uh i had the sri lankan buddhist heritage through my dad now my dad emphasized uh being catholic although he grew up in a catholic and buddhist household uh he had sort of uh eh, there's no nice way of saying this but i love my dad. he he very much assimilated a western point of view as a way of trying to survive uh, all the awful discrimination he faced when he came to this country Uh, even when my parents got married in the 1960s, they had to go to another state just to get married because of uh, laws against uh, you know, white folks marrying people of color. Um, so he became, actually, one time my dad told me, he said, you must be whiter than white people. <laughs> I was like, what? It's like, you must get a good education and you must work very hard and you must be whiter than the white people. And uh, that it always struck me in like two ways. One was like, man, that is really messed up. And the other way was that was his act of defiance, you know, that he, for the discrimination he faced and that he wasn't gonna back down. And you know, what are you gonna say? My dad grew up in a part of Sri Lanka that at the time was very impoverished. It's actually called Slave Island. Uh, Yeah, right, and it's where actually had a history of being involved in the slave trade, and yet he ended up teaching at Stanford University, so uh, if I'm going to criticize my dad, I'll also say that. He rose all the way to the top and as a really uh, amazing person. In what field? Oh, uh, also psychology, (laughs) yeah, and uh, yeah, he's one of the early pioneers of of, uh, biofeedback and psychophysiology, and uh, also, he did a fair amount of hypnosis research. I think maybe my dad's uh, funny thing about him is uh, his great claim to fame may be that he's like the only person who's practically interested at all in low hypnotic ability, like why people don't experience hypnosis. Like everyone, I have to admit, including me, uh, is more interested in why people have these fantastic experiences. And meanwhile, my dad specialized in researching low hypnotic but He always a really uh different kind of person and I love him a lot. Um but yeah, he had a lot of assimilation. So that kind of fucked me up a little bit. Um but you know, he did the best. Um in what way did that you said fuck you up? It did, yeah, it did. Uh I uh he actually told me to tell everybody that I was white. Um which also my mom did too and she's white. And um So, you know, it it messed me up in that like things like those boys strangled me because I wasn't white and they're telling me I am white, you know. And uh, so I was always trying to pretend that I was white uh, and that led to this strange split in myself again uh, that uh, was really uh, hard to deal with. And I kept trying not to emphasize the Sri Lankan aspect of my heritage. Um, and, uh, yeah, I just, uh, it was easy to do in Peoria, Illinois. There weren't too many, uh, uh, Desi, you know, Southeast Asian folks around. Um, but I was really uncomfortable with who I was. And I developed this thing that they sometimes call, uh, internalized racism, where I actually hated the part of me that, uh, wasn't fully white and I... I did really dumb things like I wouldn't, uh, go out in the sun so that I would, you know, I'd be as pale as I possibly could. I'm kind of light skinned anyways. Um, and, uh, I tried to look as conservative as I could. And, uh, I tried, um, not to hang around other people of color. I'll say that I'm not proud of it. Not really proud of any of this part of my life, but you know, whatever it was me. Uh, Yeah, there's probably some part of me still like this of course and um i wouldn't hang out with other people of color uh i didn't want to be seen as being other and um yeah i just really developed this very strong case of social anxiety and uh next thing you know um you know i was barely hanging out with anyone i was so uncomfortable with myself and becoming totally uh incapable of enjoying life on its normal terms. I couldn't go out and dance. I couldn't uh, uh, go out to a party. I couldn't do anything that involved social interaction unless it was with people that were very, very close that I had known for a long time. And even then, I probably wouldn't tell them about anything I was experiencing emotionally. I was so repressed. So this this really messed me up pretty bad. Uh, uh, but, however, on the other hand, um, I would say um, that s- some of the spiritual things, and particularly the psychedelic uh, experiences I had, began to give me glimpses into me needing to maintain this rigid view of myself as a white person, um, how this was really hurting me, you know, and really. Like, I didn't know, why did I feel this anxious all the time? And I know I didn't want anyone to know that I was anxious. That actually made me more anxious and more paranoid. It was like, uh, does anyone know that I feel anxiety? It's the worst thing ever. Oh, my God, you know, a human being might experience anxiety. Everyone will make fun of you. And uh, literally, I, I thought this way. And, you know, I would avoid social occasions and, uh Even when I would go to church, actually, I preferred to go to church after everyone left. And I would just go in and pray uh, by myself, you know. Uh, That was still like in the time when people had neighborhood neighborhood, uh, churches where the doors would be open all the time, you know. Mm. And so I would just go in there, you know, when I thought no one would be there and pray. That's really sad, you know, not open life. Um, Then still I had a lot of interest in these uh, transpersonal experiences and spiritual experiences, and I just felt so alienated at odds uh, with everything. And but thankfully, uh, my good friend uh, LSD came into my life, and and uh, just totally slapped me silly uh, at the very end of my first trip, which uh, boy is really a funny story in and of itself because I act by accident met Timothy Leary in that. <laughs> it's very strange, you know, just <laughs> was it randomly he was at a party that I happened to stumble into with some other people I was tripping with and I was like, This can't be. Why is it? Timothy Leary's not here? This is just your LSD, you know, hallucination. So I go up to him and I was like, You're 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 Tim Leary. And he goes, No, no. Now you're Tim Leary. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, no, you're Tim Leary. He goes, no, no, no. No, you're Tim Leary. Yeah. <laughs> just going on for like 10 minutes back and forth, him saying, I'm Tim Leary. I'm saying he's Tim Leary. Uh, and then I started realizing we were both on acid, actually. <laughs> and, uh, and he actually was there. Uh, um, and so that was a very joyful trip I also saw. Uh, early acid house party where they're playing a lot of psychic TV music and fun things, but at the end of it, uh, this friend of mine says to me, "Oh man, we can't wait for this uh, trip to be over." And I was like, "Yeah, I'm pretty tired too. This uh, goes on forever." And he's like, "Well, it's not just that." And I was like, "What do you mean?" And he goes, "Well, I'm so tired for this kind of freaky anxiety. You know, wish it would go away." I was like, "Oh yeah, that'll be great." And then suddenly I realized my anxiety wasn't going away. I actually was experiencing less anxiety than I normally did. And when I got off the LSD, I was going to experience more. And in fact, I had been hiding this my entire life uh, without, or at least most of my life. And uh, I I, I couldn't repress it anymore. The LSD, that one trip, and that one guy just saying that little thing, totally revealed to me that I had this extremely powerful anxiety that, uh, was really not going to go away, uh, that I didn't know what it was about. Uh, I didn't connect it to being, you know, almost killed, uh, you know, I actually kind of was killed, you know, uh, you know, strangled to death. I didn't connect it to my dad and mom kind of telling me not to be, you know, a, a brown boy, um, I didn't connect it to anything. I just thought there was something wrong with me, but uh, I, stopped having, I stopped having the ability to repress it and fake that I didn't have anxiety. And then that was the most wonderful thing that could have happened to me. Uh, and I continued using uh, psychedelics for a time to try and derive more understanding of why that was, went into therapy, and really deepened my uh, practice of uh, meditation Uh, at that time and over time um all of these things uh helped me to kind of see this this was just really stupid you know i was trying to just not be a brown guy especially when there was so many cool things about it you know and then uh a few years before that i had uh, received my first book on tibetan buddhism uh was uh I believe it was kindness, clarity, and insight by His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And my mom had given this to me. And when she gave it to me, um, she said uh, very specifically uh, that, you know, your family uh, in Sri Lanka, you know, Buddhism is religion there. I think it would be good for you to read this. And that was like one of the first times that I heard my mom saying something, um, that really affirmed uh, my Sri Lankan heritage, and uh, I should say that during this time, my f- father had uh, divorced my mom and moved away to another state, so I hadn't seen him in many years actually. And so, for her to do this was sort of kind of a tough thing for her. And uh, so, I respected that, and you know, read this book, and I was like, "Wow, this is pretty neat stuff," you know. And the other funny thing was, uh, I saw these images of Mahakala. And uh, I look at this, I said, wow, you know, this might be the religion for me. This looks like a Slayer album here. This my... <laughs> this looks like a Iron Maiden running James Dio stuff. You know, it's got this imagery that, you know, um, I definitely like, uh, you know, light and, and dark things, but yeah, it's really hard to find sacred uh, images that, uh, you know, kind of appeal to this more. So we say shadowy kind of uh, energies. And uh, there it was. And then uh, not long after that, uh, someone played for me uh, one of these David Lewiston recordings of the Gyoto monks the singing a uh, Mahakala uh, chant. And uh, I thought, well, my God, this is so powerful. I don't even know what they're saying. Uh, I don't know what's happening here at all. But I love this. Uh, and so I've just become more and more interested in Tibetan Buddhism at that point. Um, and next thing you know, uh, I learned that there were some Tibetan Buddhist groups uh, near where I was uh, in uh, studying in college in Champaign, Illinois, at the University of Illinois. I learned there were some groups up in Chicago. And so, I started, you know, like noting where they were, and uh, I didn't know anything about the lineages or anything like that, uh, but I knew that there was something that was really uh, calling me about this, and uh, this is back in the day when uh, the Snow Lion uh, had their fabulous, uh, you know, newsletter and catalog, you know, some of this gigantic, you know, look like a you know, it's like a, I don't know, like a crazy fanzine or something for Tibetan Buddhists or something, and uh, I just loved this thing. Like I was, I felt like I was, you know, uh, so fortunate just to know that there was a Snow Lion lose newsletter that had all of this information about Tibetan Buddhism and descriptions of all the books. You know, it went on forever. And I would read the entire thing, like read every single description of every single book. Uh, and I tried try to buy as many as I could afford, uh, and probably <laughs> more than I could have afforded, really. Uh, and I learned more and more about it, and uh, all of these things that I had an interest in kept coming up. Uh, lucid dreaming, uh, you know, certainly near-death experiences with Deloge and all that, and uh, definitely an interest in the rainbow body uh, things to talk about in there, and just, Generally, the philosophy of the nature of mind and that, um, you know, things about the illusion of self and uh, the illusionary way in which we grasp onto the world and the dreamlike nature of reality, this kind of thing. And so uh, that newsletter was just like the best thing for me at that time in my uh, late teens. And eventually I did find my way up to. Uh, Chicago, where there was a number of uh, wonderful uh, Tibetan uh, Buddhist uh, groups. Uh, One in particular that I I visited a lot was uh, run by this guy, I think I mentioned his name earlier, Roberto Sanchez, uh, who used to uh, ran like a Rimei group, you know, non-sectarian, and so brought lots of people from different lineages, and um, whenever I could get to one, I would uh, try to go and see whoever came, and how so I ended up meeting Glenn Mullen one time, such a wonderful guy. He really encouraged me that uh, rascals like myself might, do, might be welcomed in <laughs> such a, such a uh, you know, really sophisticated and really uh, amazing indigenous uh, uh, psychology and practice, you know, is the way I was thinking of it at the time and just as powerful lineage that went back, you know, at least uh, 1800 years. And, you know, if we were to understand the lineage of bone, maybe 18,000 years, you know, so, uh, I don't really know. But uh, I guess they have, what finding uh, some Chinese archeologists finding things suggest maybe at least uh, several thousand years um, in Zogchen, but, um, at any rate, it was much older than lineage of psychology, which I had been studying. And so I started thinking, you know, this is amazing. I have to be a part of this. And um, around that time, I ended up uh, uh, visiting um, a Shambhala uh, Center in Chicago.
0: May I interrupt you to ask oh, a question? Please, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, please. Uh, yeah. G- given that Glenn's been on the podcast, on this podcast so many times, I think I would be remiss not to ask you Yeah, please, yeah. How, how it was that he encouraged you that a rascal such as yourself might be welcomed into this into this situation
1: well it was really a direct transmission just by him you know he is such a rascal and uh, at, at the same time he's an extremely serious and erudite person like uh, there is someone you know who when he was teaching uh giving his teachings on the dharma i think the first thing that i saw him uh try to present on was like so far above where i was at the time i think it was like six yogas of naropa or something you know and uh i was like i who is uh naropa and what, what do you mean yoga you know <laughs> study is that like a Yangar? <laughs> you know this is kind of the level i was at when I go to see this. But he actually began talking about all these things and the philosophy behind them uh, and uh, led basic meditations. And uh, I found I was able to understand that. And um, I think the way that they were doing this was that he would give like a maybe like a three hour talk on a Friday, and then there would be like a workshop for people who were ready for the sixth yoga thing. Mm-hmm. Uh and so I would just come to the Friday night thing because I was <laughs> I was smart enough to know where uh the water that was too deep for me or something. Uh that was the deep end of the pool for me at the time. Uh but I loved hearing him. He was so inspirational because he could talk with great erudition about uh the history and uh, general nature of Tibetan Buddhist practice, and he seemed as concerned uh about people there that knew nothing uh as people who knew uh, like uh, everything and maybe even practiced everything he was about to transmit and uh it was very encouraging you know also uh you know most of my life i've always been drawn to kind of counterculture stuff and i i grew my hair long and as i'm 50 years old my hair is still long you know wonderful and uh You know, he wasn't like one of these stuffy Buddhists that, you know, sort of um, wasn't welcoming to to people like me, you know, even though a lot of the people who uh, I would sort of, I won't mention names who seem like uh, stuffy Buddhists to me. At one time, they were hippies. (laughs) If you go back, you know, you will see, oh, you were not always driving Lexus, you know, (laughs) maybe you were happy to have VW Microbus back in the day. but at any rate, he was not like that at all. He was very welcoming to me. And uh, one of the things that I'm uh, known for <laughs> is we're asking a million questions when I go to Dharma groups. You know, uh, when I meet a teacher that I'm very excited to meet, uh, I will try to respectfully ask questions. And in my early days... I was not as respectful, (laughs) I would just keep asking questions and more and more and sometimes asking questions for which uh, uh, only probably I could understand the question because I was referring to like things in psychology. So in order to ask the question, I would first have to explain for two minutes like what dissociation was and what hypnosis was. And he had no trouble answering all of my questions and he waited very patiently for me to explain anything that I tried to explain. And he seemed actually genuinely interested in uh, the the weirder the question he seemed to like. And uh, I don't know, like, uh, then just also his energy, you know, like, uh, I guess some of my feeling from reading uh, meditation was that, uh, I had this kind of uh, false idea about meditation that it was about pure attention, Uh, that it was, you know, I had to, and actually at the time in psychology, I was actually studying uh, the neurophysiology of attention. And so this kind of dovetailed with, you know, like how I could measure pure attention and EG, uh, event-related potentials. And I thought, oh, this would be a really good way of showing that meditation works, you know, that people's selective attention is getting better, which, you know, probably does, and most people get uh, better along the way. But I thought that was actually like the nature of, you know, mind was in you know, pure attention or something. Uh, and, uh, you know, being like really rigid in that, like a completely claustrophobic feeling of meditation, just like, oh, I'm trapped in this coffin, and I'm noticing every breath, <laughs> you know, it's not, no sense of space very little compassion and that's kind of what i thought you know this meditation was and here's this guy and totally violate that you know this not is really expansive person very magnetic and at least you know i i feel this way and uh really uh, um, full range of emotions complete range of emotions uh capable of uh really uh, amazing humor, and uh, even ones that uh, were fairly paradoxical, you know, uh, and I just, I don't know, I just really love this guy a lot, and uh, I felt like um, if this uh, person as, uh, qualif- could raise to the level of uh, training and qualifications in terms of his work and scholarship, and he could still be him like that, then wow, you know, right. I, I, my ideal of uh, what it could be to be involved with this tradition uh, was wrong, that I didn't need to kind of fake that I was this good boy, and, you know, I meditated every day, you know, and, you know, I uh, never uh, missed a day without doing my Noondro, and, you know, it was like I, you know, it was totally perfect in this completely claustrophobic way, you know, it was really, uh, he really demonstrated to me that that was not where it was at, because, you know, in my mind, here was a person who really understood the teachings in a profound way, and yet didn't act like the kind of goody-goody, uh, I guess, you know, person that I thought uh, this would be like. I, you know, it was really inspirational to me that there, there was someone that had more of this kind of trickster energy that I feel like I have, uh, and that you know had uh, amazing transpersonal experiences, and would talk about them as well. So yeah, I could go on and on. That's that's indeed why I, uh, you know, learned
0: to view is because of Glenn.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, I, I loved watching those interviews with him. He did an amazing job with that.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. Thank you. So you were saying you went up to the Shambhala Center.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. So at that time, the Shambhala Center. Uh, was uh, near um, uh, what we would call an elevated train so that right behind the Shambala Center uh, it was sort of like this uh, I don't know how many floors were in this building maybe like four floors but the very back of it ran an elevated train you know like a subway train except it's you know, elevated in Chicago uh, and so this is where <laughs> I was like seriously went to my first uh, like weekend meditation you know retreat you know I was like oh man I'm gonna like meditate three days in a row it's like wow you know probably by the end of that I'll be enlightened I remember thinking this you know like whoever did this you know sat down for three whole days wow you know and and uh, then I go there and I was like oh man this is here it comes you know I'm gonna get enlightened (laughs) for sure and. I remember walking up those steps, thinking, "Oh, this is where I get (laughs) it." All of this, you know, here it is. You know, it's coming. And uh, I go and uh, sit down, and uh, this nice uh, meditation hall. Remember this, of course, pictures of Chagam Trungpa. uh, I think probably his holiness the Karmapa. Um, And uh, so you know, they teach us some basic meditation, and we begin. And about 20 minutes later, suddenly the like, entire building began shaking, <laughs> like as if earthquake. And I was like, oh, wait a minute, <laughs> it's like a subway train, you know? And so, like that, like clockwork, you know, it was a little bit random. But about every 15 minutes, you know, the building would shake like this, and there'd be this large sound as if, you know, tornado or earthquake was you know, hitting the building. And I was thinking, like, what kind of idiot builds a meditation center next to a, you know, a retreat center? You know, this is like, uh, I mean, you know, builds next to a train track, you know. This is really dumb, you know. And I was really frustrated. Uh, but, you know, I, like, kind of paid the money. So I wanted to get my money's worth. And they seemed like nice people. So I kept doing it. And I was astonished. Um it after you know like a day or two i don't know when but sometime by the end of the treat it suddenly struck me that the train didn't bother me anymore like a train would come and uh i would hear it and i could kind of feel the vibration and thing but uh it just didn't seem to disturb me in the same way that it did at first and i didn't have all these thoughts of asking for my money back and stuff like that and uh, anger at the people who had, uh, started this. It's like, wow, that was pretty interesting. And I found that, uh, uh, you know, there's, uh, a lot of suppositions that I think, you know, people normally have about our experience of reality. And, um, uh, to me that dramatically, uh, Demonstrated to me again that, um, like, I thought that because there is a train and the train is shaking the building, and I'm trying to meditate on uh, my breathing, that this would be, uh, you know, an impediment. Like, no one can learn to meditate under these circumstances. And also, this is just bad, you know, and this is, I thought that's just the way it is, you know, the sound will. Uh, ruin my meditation. And, and instead, what ended up happening was um, <laughs> that was not the case at all. In fact, later when they moved the meditation center away from where the train was, I kind of missed it. <laughs> I was like, oh, I miss that train, you know, it was kind of like a friendly vibration that would go through the room. And, uh, you know, I had uh, kind of, Learned uh, that actually it wasn't the enemy of my practice, uh, and which is funny because a lot of the meditation centers I studied in in uh, Chicago and Milwaukee had that quality, where either ambulances or you know uh, trains or something would make a lot of noise. Um, but that that really uh, started to give me some sense of uh, what I had learned about this word space like finding the space of uh in practice was like uh years before i had bought a book by uh tarth uh toku uh rinpoche and the title of the book was in search of space and so i actually bought the book thinking like this was about astral travel or something <laughs> You know, I thought, Oh, this is great, I'll read this book and I will learn how to leave my body in astral travel. Uh, which, yeah, I guess maybe you could make some argument is related to that, but you yeah, know, it's really the space he's talking about was not outer space. You know, it was about the space that we find through, you know, I think relinquishing our fixation on ourselves and our grasp on the illusory world. Um, which is a much simpler thing and which Oddly enough, I learned in a a meditation center that was, you know, interrupted every 15 minutes with uh, train travel. Uh, I learned that actually I didn't have to respond with uh, regression, uh, aggression to this sound. It was just a sound. And it actually wasn't a sound that was bad for me at all. Um, And it kind of became invisible to me in a way, though I still experienced it at some level. Uh, It just seemed that there was more space for that sound to occur in. And in general, I found there was more space for me to be me, you know, and all the crazy parts of me. I suppose that's the thing that, uh, getting back to Glenn, that I really noticed about him. He has a lot of space to be him. And it's one of the, he doesn't seem to like hide too much. He's very transparent. And I love that about him. a lot of space to be himself and all the parts of him. And especially for a person like myself that grew up all crazy conflicted about whether I was white or brown or none of these things, which is actually the case, I guess, (laughs) but uh, um, it, uh, it felt like there was more space coming from him. And it was really demonstrated this to me that you could actually not hide all the things you were, that you could give enough space to all the parts of yourself as a way of actually working with them. And I connected that to the practice of meditation uh, through the Shambhala centers. And I continued with them uh, for quite a few years. Uh, eventually, I started attending the Milwaukee uh, Shambhala center where there was this wonderful man, uh, such a great, you know, uh, there's a great Sanskrit word for this uh, Kalyana Mitra, you know, the spiritual friend, you know. And his name was Robin Cornman. He was uh, a very lavish, <laughs> like uh, did, I don't. Did you ever meet Robin Cornman? Just curious. Never. Okay. Okay. So Robin Corman was very Glenn and It is very much a, a trickster. Uh, even uh, tricked me into my first long meditation retreat. You know, uh, he tricked me into doing. It he was just a wonderful man. He was a professor of uh, Sanskrit and Tibetan. Uh, he had gotten his PhD at uh, Princeton, and then he got a job at the University of Milwaukee, and he was one of the founders of the Nalanda Translation uh, Committee, you know, that worked with Trungpa and other Kaju teachers, probably Dilgo Kensei, too, if I was hazard to guess, so probably some Nyingma folks as well, uh, and they're still there doing this work, um, but he was one of the founders of that, and uh, he had been uh, Trungpa's uh, cook for a time, and founded uh, um, some of the original uh, teachings at Karma Choling. You know, he was involved with uh, the, those founding events and also at Naropa University where I teach now. Um, and so meeting him was like uh, wonderful because also he lived you know, near me. So every Thursday I would go and harass him with questions. He would give a Dharma talk every Thursday and teach meditation and i learned so many things from him uh he went through every single uh seminary because you know the shambhal tradition they have this thing where you attend seminaries and he went through all the seminary transcripts with us anyone who was willing to listen he would go through all the mahayana uh, first start with the hinayana then start with the mahayana related ones and then uh, he would go over some selected uh, things related to Vajrayana as well, particularly things around the sadhana of Mahamudra is one of the sort of uh, key t- uh texts that Trungpa came up with. And um, he was so devoted to those teachings, and yet he was still a really funny uh, jubu. You know, he's like grew up Jewish and and Buddhist, you know, and he's a wonderful jubu and had this uh, kind of Southern, uh, he's a, uh, uh, Cajun uh, kind of stuff, you know, and uh, and also he would like make, throw these big parties, you know, where he would make this wonderful food, you know, and uh, particularly for poor graduate students like myself at the time, to have somebody who was always wanting to have you over and talk about Dharma, and, uh, he he would not mind at all me asking him a million questions about how Dharma was related to hypnosis and. I think over time, it was really became like he became probably more knowledgeable about hypnosis than practically anyone in the world because we ask him so many questions, you know, about these things. Uh, and, uh, you know, just have us over to have food and uh, really pay attention to helping us to understand the Dharma and uh, taught uh, meditation. And so many wonderful things happened to me because of Robin Kornman. I have no doubt in my mind uh, that without Robin Kornman, uh, I don't know if I uh, would have made as deep a connection to the Dharma as I did, because he literally, on a weekly basis for many years, just poured his uh, effort into uh, my development and anyone else who was around. He was like uh, so generous, such a generous man. And uh, such a sharp mind, such a sharp mind. And also, like Glenn Mullen had a lot of space to give for himself and is a really wonderful person. Uh, you know, so maybe a few moments with uh, Robin, I'll say uh, I'll never forget uh, one time, maybe about a year after I had started uh, studying with him and meditating with him, uh, just uh, completely idealizing him. And uh, I used to actually intentionally sit behind him during the meditation portion uh, because I found it so inspirational. Like uh, he's kind of a big guy, you know, and uh, when he would sit, I would look at him and just like his body looked like he sit like a mountain, you know, and I thought, Oh man wouldn't it be great if I could sit like Robin Kornman, you know? So one time I actually uh, told him that, you know, I was like, I was like, Robin, it must be so good. And uh, he's like, what what do you mean? And he said, uh, you know, it must be so good when you sit and you sit like a mountain and your mind is completely calm and spacious and one, you know, with everything or... I don't know what, but you look great when you sit. I I wish I could experience that. And uh, then he looked at me and said, you'd like to believe that, wouldn't you? (laughs) 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 And uh, what that immediately uh, transmitted to me was uh, it actually, uh, you know, having an idealized practice was not where this was at, you know, that actually just having whatever your practice is, is where it's at, you know, where it's at, is where it's actually at, you know, (laughs) and and that was wonderful. You know, it really gave me a lot of space to be as fucked up as I am because Lord knows I am. And, uh, uh, you know, me hiding that is not gonna make it any better and uh, me allowing it gives it more space and then you know maybe you know this zogchen philosophy you know if i give give enough space then it will dissolve (laughs) into the vast expanse of the sky kind of stuff but trying to repress or hide uh will not uh make it better and so uh, that really helped a lot and the second thing I'll say about him is how he tricked me into my first uh, month-long meditation retreat. The way he did it was he knew that I wanted to go and do a longer retreat. You know, We did uh, weekend ones frequently in Milwaukee there, and we did uh, week-long ones sometimes. And he knew that I wanted to go. But he also knew at that time I was a very poor graduate student. I was existing totally... On loans, and uh, they were piling up. And uh, even with some part time work I did, you know, I was really, really strapped for cash. And uh, to the point where, like, there was a number of us in that situation. And he used to have us over for dinner and make meals for us, you know, just to feed us. You know, it was really nice. A really loving guy, you know. Um, and also, he liked, I'm sure, the intellectual stimulation of all of this. I mean, it's. He was wonderful, but uh, so he says to me, oh, Ian, uh, they're having a special uh, month-long meditation at Shambhala Mountain Center, which at the time was called the Rocky Mountain Dharma Center. Uh, This was before the whole weirdness in the Shambhala lineage about how it um, forced everyone into the Shambhala lineage, which I didn't like. Um, And uh, he's like, uh, yeah, if you just fill out this application, Uh, then um, I'll send it in for you. And uh, if you just give $108, it'll cover the meals and the lodging and everything. It's a special deal uh, for this one time for members of the Sangha. And I was like, wow, it's wonderful. I could afford that. And I totally believed the whole thing. And I filled out the application and and I said, who do I make the check out to? And he says, oh, you could just make out the check to me. And I was like, okay, whatever. So I give him a check for $108. And then, you know, I don't know how much the Dottons ran in those days, but I would guess it was, you know, probably like a $1,000 or something. He paid for it. He told it, And it was like on the retreat when finally I figured out how he had tricked me, you know, into that, you know. And then I have a, a beautiful man. Like who? Who does such a thing you know to you know crazy uh crazy people that are his students actually he didn't have, he was not a wealthy man you know himself you know, he was, you, know you don't necessarily pay a lot to the religious studies scholars you know uh so he was not like so wealthy he could be afford to be doing this uh but he did it anyways you know he and it wasn't just me uh, on that retreat, I went to, there were three other people that we all thought, yeah, we got the special $108 deal. Well, how wonderful, you know. And it was totally Robin Cornman. He was the one who did that. Really wonderful man, really cared about uh, all of his students. Uh, and in fact, uh, I was getting a little choked up here. Uh, when I wrote my first uh, solo authored paper in psychology, it was on uh, the philosophy of how uh, client-centered Rogerian psychotherapy had a similar philosophy to the Dharma in terms of its understanding of why people are suffering and this kind of thing and what needs to be done to help them. Uh, And so I uh, compared these conditions. And mostly the Dharma quotations I was using were things that Robin had introduced me to. And so I dedicated the paper to him. And uh, then I was so happy uh, I was able to show him this, uh, because not long after that, unfortunately, he died. Uh, and But uh, I was really happy that um, w- my first real act of scholarship, you know, all by myself, uh, I dedicated to him because uh, of what he had done for me in all those years. Was such a wonderful man. <laughs>
0: That's Robin Corman. Corman. <laughs> also <crazy>. a trickster. <laughs> yeah. That's wonderful. What is the secret to that space? Mm. Oh. <laughs> I
1: mean, I'm just first thinking of the secret is for sure that it is not talking about outer space. <laughs> like I thought for many years, you know, uh, is actually something much more useful than that, you know, and um, I think the secret to that space is that it's always there, you know, even when it doesn't feel like it, uh, that we can actually find it, you know, Uh, it seems uh, strange to say that it's like a soul secret that it's like the, uh, Is A little like, a, sort of struck with the notion of uh, the crazy uh, uh, new wave band Devo, you know, like where they talk about how one needs to devolve in order to return to a more pristine state. So I think that's the other funny thing about the space is it's always there. Actually it's a direct quotation from Tenzin Wangyal Rinpoche. I've heard him say this many times. Space is always there. You know space is always there. Uh and uh but also uh ironically that uh you don't need to create it since it's always there. You don't need to create it. Uh and you don't need um to evolve yourself. In fact, better, it would be to devolve the self. (laughs) It's very funny. Uh, The other day, uh, I don't know if you know, do you know Dmitry Emakov? I'm just curious. No. So he's a Bond scholar that does a lot of translation for, you know, the lineage. And uh, he was critiquing uh, a quote someone had given of uh, Namki Norbu, you know, and he was talking about, Zogchen is a kind of evolution and consciousness he's trying to make the opposite argument that actually uh Zogchen is really devo more like devo than you know he didn't say devo he said de-evolution but you know my crazy uh, new wave loving mind i was thinking like devo yeah I'll put my red hat on and, and, and practice Zogchen, you know uh it's even they call it the energy dome actually uh <laughs> but uh so yeah it does space doesn't need to be created it's always there and uh you need not uh alter yourself you know make yourself better that actually what would be best is to kind of evolve the self and that may be too dualistic too i'm not sure but uh, it would be more in the direction Of devolving the self than uh, creating the self that's for sure it may be that may be too dualistic I don't know
0: when you're saying evolve the self and devolve the self what what do you have in mind well I think in
1: uh, evolving the self was really one of the biggest uh, impediments for me in my practice and one of the reasons why I think I was always asking a millions of questions you know I was asking all these questions and I'm glad I asked the questions and I developed really nice relationships that way for sure. But I have noticed that uh this fixation on trying to create an idealistic uh, practice and experience of practice, um, this is not where it's at, you know. Um, ironically, that's not the ideal. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, <laughs> too paradoxical. You know, it's like the best thing would be to you know, just be genuinely who I am, you know, and really allow that to be as it is. Uh, this is another wonderful saying that I got from a bon teacher, uh, and Rinpoche. It says uh, continuously, leave it as it is. Like any question you you might ask and Rinpoche, he might answer that. Leave it as it is, you know. Um, and that is... Uh, not necessary to create a, a self that's ideal uh, to experience meditation. In, in fact, that is not ideal, you <laughs> know, for sure. You know, let me create the pristine self. I am the one who is experiencing this wonderful meditation. See how I am now deep in meditation and experiencing all of the non-dualistic experiences and, and city that arise from, you know, whatever other ornaments, you know, uh, I might try to put on the self. Uh, In the end, uh, totally not necessary. And but I think, for me, one of the reasons why I was asking so many questions was, uh, I had a deep um, feeling of inadequacy about who I am, you know, Uh, even though, you know, I've definitely way better than i used to be as i described it the earlier part of this you know podcast uh it's really horrible you know uh but still i i discovered that there's some kind of inherent um suffering you know coming from trying to create and maintain the illusion of self you know which is one of the things i really enjoy in my own hypnosis research is how i've been able to show like maybe this, this is the is about this like uh it knows is not maybe so much about um, how we uh, attain liberation but it really explains how we create the illusion of self and why it's so convincing and uh so, so i really enjoy that and even that is a, a great you know help sometimes you know like Someone who's like really in critical bad shape uh you know is necessary to do some grounding and sometimes you know uh we want to make sure people are in a very good place you know to actually be able to appreciate uh you know kind of emptiness it does not lead to more uh confusion that can really you know make people very crazy sometimes you know. Sometimes it would be better to remember. Oh yeah, your name is Ian, and actually, you, you have this cat, and, and the cat loves you. It isn't that nice, you know. Um, so, I feel like um, this uh, notion that I once had that I needed to create an idealistic self in order to experience meditation purely—I've learned it's a complete bullshit. And so then the exact the exact opposite seems indicated here, that I need to let myself be purely who I am and to be very vulnerable and very transparent. And then actually, ironically, there's a dramatic strength in being that vulnerable and a dramatic strength in being um, that open because there's no, there's a feeling of not needing to defend myself, you know, uh, or really selves there's so many people in here at this point uh there's not uh no need to defend you know, the real real truth does not need defending and it kind of reminds me of you know there's this is tibetan parable uh, they talk about uh essence of uh, refined gold you know they say like the real truth has the essence of refined gold you can take like a you know like a, i think they call this a jeweler's hammer you know, and you can actually hit the gold and bring out its luster, you know. This is what actually brings out the luster of the gold make it shine. Is uh is examining, you know, and uh and literally hitting, you know. <laughs> it's like this is what you know, Jewel Smith does, you know, to bring out the luster of the gold in all its qualities. It needs truth needs to be examined. It doesn't need Uh, protecting or creating some ideal um circumstance the circumstance that we're in is enough Hmm. you know it is a totally enough and it's okay um i don't need to create a um a circumstance and uh better would be to sort of lay off on that whole thing and let everything be as it is and then um you know, hopefully, over time, these things just dissolve of their own nature, rather than some kind of uh, repression. So that's kind of what I was meaning about uh, evolution and uh, deevolution itself.
0: Mm-hmm. That's <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating. I'm curious, seeing as you're also a psychologist and therapist, mm-hmm. um, yeah. how do you see the interaction between that sort of a perspective and things like personal boundaries and this sort of thing? I think. Th- Sometimes the uh, space, equanimity, things of that nature seem to imply a kind of passivity in terms mm-hmm. of personal boundaries, or at least when one is, say, under threat or boundaries being uh, violated in some sort of a way. Uh, mm-hmm. I've noticed occasionally a confusion. how mm-hmm. no one should react to the threat, let's say. The spiritual thing would be sort of turning the other cheek, I suppose.
1: Yeah, what you're thing uh, comes up in the context of, you know, why didn't, Tibetans use their, you know, superpowers to destroy the Chinese invasion or something like that. You know, why did they allow? Uh, why did they not resist? Although, you know, Compaas did resist, and even the CIA helped them. But, um, but yeah, I understand a little bit what you're saying from that perspective. That people are often
0: do. Um, well, didn't it? Wasn't it the fact that the Tibetans didn't have the army to resist? Um. That
1: is also true, uh, but also they, you know, by policy uh, disbanded their army, and uh, also uh, it is true that some uh, some did actually resist. The COMPAs for sure resisted sure. and had training from the CIA and things like that. Um, but in general, um, you know, there's this idea, I, I definitely understand the idea you're saying, and it also comes up in the context that sometimes people wonder why like Rinpoche's aren't leading uh, social protests, you know, this kind of things. I mean, some do actually, but you know, uh, people ask uh, in particular Chagyam Trungpa Rinpoche why he not involved in, you know, a lot of the protests uh, that were going on in his time. Though he actually wrote about uh, his uh, uh, position against uh, nuclear arms and things like that But, yeah, people do wonder about that. You know, is there a passivity about this? You know, is there uh, there something? um, Well, actually, the word that comes up, you know, uh, for people who read the Dharma is, you know, spiritual materialism, right? Are we using these teachings in a way that is making us numb, you know, to some things uh, that we
0: shouldn't be numb to? What I mean, I suppose, is that uh, on the level of the individual who maybe uh, is exploring this idea of not needing to defend, you know, this idea mm-hmm. of space, these sorts of mm-hmm. ideas around equanimity, um, yeah. it seems that one of the skills from a therapeutic point of view is taking the client to a point where they're able to, you know, set boundaries, where they're able to stand up for themselves. And one of the things it seems in, in therapeutic context that can be a barrier to setting a boundary, or standing up for oneself is sure, com- fear of conflict for sh- certainly. Can also be uh, ideas about being nice, I don't want to be a bad person, I don't want to, this sort of idea. Similarly could be seen as well, I need to be equanimous, or I need to be spacious. The best way to deal with this incoming difficulty or this threat or this uh, that interpersonal conflict of some sort is what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna take the spacious position, I'm not going to defend. And that uh, interaction between the need to set boundaries, from a therapeutic point of view, is usually seen as one of the, a goal, right? Um, and the spaciousness—how how, have you thought um, uh, much about the interaction of those ideas and their possible conflicts?
1: Yes, I have, uh, and I have a fairly simple way of understanding the nature of the conflict, which is that um, most of the schools of psychology and counseling uh, have only recently discovered non-dualism. And the way that they experienced non-dualism was also through a fairly um, uh, subtle way, like uh, through the teachings of John Kabat-Zinn and his research on mindfulness, which tended to emphasize the dualistic results of mindfulness, that people had decrease in depression score, people had to de- decrease in anxiety. Uh, and those are all good things, of course, but like no one is talking about how you find space in mindfulness. Uh, well, actually, if you read some of his writings, he does kind of go into that a bit. But you know the way that people spun his research was you know not, not people you know may even make fun of he himself make fun of his own kind of stuff and calls it Mick mindfulness, which is sort of like the mm-hmm. spiritual materialistic grabbing on mindfulness. So that's the real problem, I think, in the counseling context and psychology context is it's really only very, very uh, few psychologists and psychology uh, theorists that have a fairly non-dual perspective on the nature of mind. You'll find it most commonly in transpersonal psychology. Uh, Everyone uh, in that area is approaching or at least attempting to approach a non-dual, non-dualistic philosophy. You know, some I think are more successful than others, but everyone is at least trying to go there. Um, and here and there, you know, you can actually find some really amazing psychoanalysts uh, that have something a little closer to a, a non-dualistic philosophy. You know, Lacan and um, this fellow named Paul Federn, uh, who starts kind of the ego states tradition. Uh, but um, more or less, and a guy named uh Fairban, there's a, a number of uh uh analysts and and such you can find here and there. but the vast majority of counselors are actually not trained in transpersonal psychology or psychoanalysis anymore, and if they are trained in uh psychoanalysis, often they're not studying these kind of deeper folk who are generally regarded as kind of crazy, <laughs> you know, sometimes even called uh, wild analysts, you know. Uh, I study psychoanalysis myself and proudly call myself a wild analyst, you know. Uh, so I think that's, that's the kind of the, the w- way that this is coming off, is like people be thinking like, um, and I think often this comes from the life of a therapist that some a therapist has a problem themselves with boundaries uh, often counselors are like this these are people who naturally have some empathy and a lot of curiosity and, and desire to want to help and then uh learn that you know they're not uh actually uh helping people that much by doing a lot of things for them you know it's like uh they were reading uh, I think it's cutting through spiritual materialism. Trunk Rinpoche talks about this concept of idiot compassion, you know, like, which is not actually doing the thing that would help someone. So like in Alcoholics Anonymous, they have this concept of uh, uh, enabling people, you know, into the addiction, like, you know, I guess buying them alcohol, but even all the things that go along with that, like making a space for them to drink and um, and all the things that go into, Not actually helping a person to remain sober. Uh, And so, this same kind of philosophy often happens, I think, to people who want to be counselors even before they are counselors. And so, they get very, uh, they read about these teachings of, you know, like how do people set good boundaries? And they're good for them. You know, they're like actually start, I mean, the, the concept of the boundary allows them to actually think about this issue? What is it actually going to help this person? And also, uh, how am I balancing my self-development along with helping other people? And so they think about the boundaries that way and they get some benefit, you know, but then, you know, they get overly dualistic about it. They're, oh, it's all about the boundaries. Psychology has this problem in general that usually like some idea becomes popular uh, and then everybody writes about it, and there are workshops everywhere, and people grasp very dualistically onto that one thing. Some, actually, the really funny term for this uh, uh, in the kind of philosophy of science, they call this a single cause etiology. Where you think, you know, think everything is caused by one thing. Currently, in psychology, that's called trauma. <laughs> you know, it's like everything is a trauma. You know, like you. Uh, your cat, uh, you know, scratched <laughs> your face in the morning, it was traumatic, you know. And, you know, and I'm a person who experienced trauma, so I'm not meaning to knock that this, you know, this kind of stuff isn't real. It for sure is real, but not everything is a trauma. Some things just kind of suck, right? <laughs> Some, they're not, didn't think you were going to die, you know. Uh, and people even started doing this thing where they talked about big T and little T trauma, like the big T trauma was the real one, and then the little t trauma was like the, it was just a real bummer or something, you know. Uh, It just really uh, amazes me how awful it is when people do that in psychology and counseling. It makes it really hard for people to, I think, uh, approach uh, the Dharma, which is by its nature and by the tradition of debate that has refreshed the philosophy and kept it alive through practice you know, really non-dualistic. And so some things that occur, you know, uh, particularly when also you're studying with a teacher that may or may not understand the nuances of how we think about the mind in a dualistic way in, uh, you know, in generally any Western context that's been influenced by, uh, you know, the, uh, psychology and counseling that these problems occur. Like people think, oh, you know, if I'm like this, then I'll be like a doormat. You know, people will use me, you know, forever. And people don't understand that this is, you know, not dualistically clinging to being a nice person. It's, you know, actually looking, you know, with real compassion to see what would actually be the right thing to help this person. uh, What would really... uh, Be the thing that would bring them some benefit. And a lot of times, that is something that we would call something like having boundaries, you know. And sometimes it's going beyond that, you know, it's not, uh, you know, dualistic, like always I will be this way, you know, which, which again, it's one of the things, uh, you know, about Robin Corman and about uh, Glenn Mullen, I found so refreshing. You know, these people were not very predictable. You know, the, you never knew what was going to happen with these people, but I had a feeling that it would be good, or at least it would be funny, or it would be stimulating in some way. Even like one time, I was talking to Glenn Mull, I'll never forget, uh, and he was talking about he was going to lead the you know expedition to Mount Kylos, you know, and I really wanted to go so bad, you know. But I study in both Kaju, Enigma, and Bond lineages. So I'm like, well, which way do I want to go around this thing? <laughs> I want to go around it counterclockwise or clockwise or something. And then I asked him, if I, could I come as a bone poe and maybe I'll go around, you know, counterclockwise, you know? And he's like, no, no, you come with us. And then we'll take you as a sacrifice while we're going around <laughs> clockwise. I was <laughs> like, what? Is I going to sacrifice me? know, it it's like it kind of, At first, you know, I don't know why. And some part of me was you know, kind of disturbed by this. Then immediately I started laughing like how crazy that he would say something like that, you know, he's such a, a wonderful person. Uh not dualistic at all. You know, he had no uh need to be seen by, you know, at least in that moment, you know, it didn't seem like he had any need to be seen by me in a certain way. Uh and I think he's also trying to teach me a little bit about the uh Through this paradoxical statement, the ridiculousness of whether you go clockwise or counterclockwise you know uh so I just really feel like that's the the issue for counselors and psychologists, and unless they have some grounding in a non dualistic western philosophy like transpersonal psychology or some of the i think more what I find the more exciting uh, schools of psychoanalysis um particularly the schools of psychoanalysis that are informed by group psychology. Because in group psychology, it's very hard to be dualistic. You, know, you start getting all this stuff going on you have no idea how this is occurring. Um, in groups, so many weird things can happen, you know, uh, that people in that area are much more open to non-dualistic uh, understanding of the self. That, that's really where, you know, you can find these great psychoanalysts where they think about the self in a less dualistic way, um that the self has an inherent emptiness to it uh, there's a number of psychoanalysts like this, like Farban and um Casimir Dabrowski, people like this um so that's that's what I always say uh, folks you know there is if you if you find some conflict there, you might think about the concepts less dualistically, you know, because I feel like for sure, um, bound having boundaries is if you really value people, you know, we need to think about what are the boundaries that we should set so that we can have, be of benefit to them. Like if we're serving as their counselor or even we're just, you know, spiritual friends, you know, or relating to a teacher. We need to think about, you know, what would be right in this in this moment? You know, what would be right in this moment for us to, um, for me to be able to understand this person and for them to be able to understand me. And uh, sometimes, you know, like Glenn and, and Robin, we should use some paradox, you know, and, and other, uh, goofy things even deception like robin used deception you know tricked me you know uh i feel like that's really where the most power comes is is having uh someone who can work with you in a non-dualistic way i feel like the best therapists have always been very paradoxical and and tricksy people and i was very lucky to know many of uh, the old timers that were like this like there's Name uh, Albert Ellis was a good friend of my dad because they were early behavior psychologists in the '60s, uh, and my dad just idolized him. And even uh, brought him to our home one, one time. He came and gave workshop uh, in the area, and, uh, and these people were um, you know founders of this fairly dualistic psychology, you know, cognitive behavior therapy. It's extremely dualistic philosophy. But I noticed the people who taught this stuff were not dualistic at all. And they were very much inclined to do all kinds of paradoxical things and to have interests that were far outside their philosophies. Like Albert Ellis in particular um, had a hidden transpersonal side to him. Like his best friend was one of my great transpersonal mentors, uh, uh, Stan Krippner, who did a lot of the early research in parapsychology Uh, cross-cultural anthropology, a number of fields, uh, you know, took ayahuasca's and, you know, visited uh, peyote sorcerers and things, Um, and that was his friend. His best friend was a totally non-dualistic person, and he did uh, peyote with uh, Stan and uh, practiced in a very, his actual therapy with people, he often used paradox. Uh, In fact, if you ever see this guy doing his therapy, he's he's fairly insulting to people at times, you know. It doesn't seem at all like uh, what you would think uh, the kind of therapist would be that he was describing you should be.
0: Does a particular example come to mind of Ellis doing this?
1: Very classic example of this that I actually can find on YouTube. Um, And it's Albert Ellis interviewing a woman named Gloria and um, so what he's trying to do in that uh in that interview that seems to me a bit paradoxical is he's trying to get her to admit that some of the beliefs that she has about herself are leading her in a direction where she's suffering that was one of the core ideas of uh, albert ellis i think is a fine idea in in general that our ideals uh, have something to do with the nature of our suffering I think it's you know it's more complex than that but you know that was his simple idea and he had uh, some ideas of what uh, he had some very specific ideas about what beliefs are they in general that cause people to suffer and so the the way that he got he he often got people to admit that they had these negative beliefs was to sort of Uh, criticize their their views of things like he would ask people to describe some situation that was in their life and then he would begin kind of like critiquing the way they were thinking of the incident you know like uh, one of the most uh, uh, difficult of his beliefs to appreciate is um, is he had the belief that one of the things that causes people to suffer is they have an inherent belief that all people must be loved and uh, appreciated at all times, which sounds like, you know, who wouldn't like that? You know, (laughs) everyone would like to be loved and appreciated. Uh, And so I remember in this one uh, interview with her, you know, he's kind of like picking at her for believing in that. And yet it's something that most people do actually believe. And actually he's right. You know, that that does get us into a lot of trouble when we feel like, it's a real existential threat if we're going to lose a relationship, you know, and sometimes actually it would be good for the relationship to end for both parties. Um, and it's just how it is, you know, um, at least in the context of the illusory selves, the two people are maintaining, I guess. Um, and so he is really hammering on that. And that's something that, you know, a lot of people watching that, it makes you feel a little uncomfortable like wow you know couldn't he have done that a little more gently you know <laughs> instead he's like sort of mocking her in that interview uh it's really an amazing guy um and so i yeah i got to know him a little bit more personally uh because he came uh, to my house when i was a little boy in the 1970s actually because of my dad all of these crazy people came uh masters and johnson's the favorite uh famous sex experts, they were lived just the one state over in rural Indiana. Like, seems so strange that, you know, these uh, amazing uh, people doing all of this uh, fantastic uh, research on human sexual relationships. It was just like maybe, uh, maybe like hour and a half, maybe two hours away from where we were. And they sometimes came and gave workshops in Peoria and they were to stay at our house, you know. Um, So I got to meet them and a number of people. I learned like most of these people, they themselves were not very dualistic at all. Like they they wrote in uh, the paradigm of dualism because uh, here's a real reason for that, at least from my point of view, Uh, the paradigm of science that all of these people are trying to follow, um, at least in our current time is very dualistic. Like even the basic philosophy of science is based in materialism, and that's really one of the main struggles that's going on right now in physics and other areas is to embrace a different philosophy of science that's less uh, dualistic. Because right now, uh, it's you know, dualism is completely entrenched in the sciences, particularly of psychology, which is ironic because that is like the least, that's <laughs> the least likely part. Of the study of science to be a good place to put dualism uh, really leaves out so much of human experience and leads to this really ridiculous uh, struggles that we've been talking about here. Um, uh, And even funnier is if you look at uh, what happens to people who have a dualistic point of view, it's been correlated with a lot of people who have personality disorders. So like the more dualistic you are, the more likely you are to have this uh, type style of thought we call dichotomous thinking. And dichotomous logic, which is you know dualism, uh, is very much associated with uh, people who have borderline personality disorder and narcissism. And also people who have struggled with depression, anger and anxiety, have this kind of dualistic logic that really needs a lot of non-dualistic love to give, bring some space to these people. Uh, and so that's how I understand the struggle, that it, it comes from this philosophy of science that psychology has really struggled uh, in the West uh, to establish itself as a legitimate science. Now, the essence of science is actually not dualism. You know, essence of science is just simply the search for the truth, you know, which I always relate to that in, in very spiritual and dharmic terms, that I feel like uh, real essence of science is not actually dualistic. And um, and that's why when I use uh, science to study things, I always try to embrace uh, both uh, non-dualistic methods like uh, phenomenological research. Just ask people, what do they experience? like. You know, any good meditator would try to experience something directly and you have a nice discussion with your teacher. Um, But also, I do like the dualistic methods because sometimes in comparing uh, non-dualistic and dualistic, sometimes you learn something very interesting, something that's uh, uh, not expected. Like, um, for instance, uh, one time I did a a fun study of people who were doing kundalini meditation. Mm -hmm. And uh, some of our uh, dualistic uh, methods were that we were studying uh, their ratings of relaxation, and we were also studying um, their psychophysiology. And particularly, we were looking at their heart rate, muscle tension, and other things. And uh, to the great astonishment of the people who were experiencing this style of yoga, uh, Uh, they reported, uh, well, this is not the great astonishment, but they reported very deep feelings of bliss and and relaxation during the the method that they had been taught. And, well, when we looked at their physiology, it looked like a classic stress reactions, you know, great elevations of heart rate, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, could be increases in some of the folks uh, in muscle tension as well. Not everyone. But heart rate elevation was very very common. And uh so tachycardia is generally seen as a stress reaction. It's you know a uh, sign of sympathetic nervous system. And so like as whole, whole dualistic logic is built into the understanding of neuroscience like this is you know sympathetic nervous system is is stress and parasympathetic nervous system is anti-stress. And so We've put all of this crazy dualism into, uh, you know, neuroscience and the study of the mind. And the whole thing is being blown apart by the study of things like kundalini meditation, tumo yoga, you know, all of these uh, amazing non-dualistic kind of techniques. They show things on either side and really, I think, reveal that the nervous system itself, yeah, maybe there's tendency of sympathetic system to be more involved in stress. Uh, and parasympathetic more involved in relaxation. But it's not exclusively that, you know, it's not exclusively this. There's also the interaction of the two things, because uh, actually, uh, you know, these two, it is possible to step on the brakes and the gas at the same time. And a lot of times that's what these non dualistic things are doing. So that, like, long time ago, the official theory of what uh, meditation was was it was enacting the parasympathetic nervous system and this was you know Herbert Benson it was really also like, I give a lot of his due just like John kabat for trying to establish meditation as a proper subject of uh, scientific inquiry but he wrote about it in this whole horribly dualistic way you know and trying to say that you know meditation is just about um, the relaxation response and so actually when I did that study I kind of guessed what the results were going to be and so I actually did it on purpose to demonstrate the uh, ineffectiveness of relax relaxation response theory and you know subsequently people have also done that with tumo yoga and other things as uh, so yeah that's a real big um, Challenge, but also the real um mm, bridge that's opening up is i at this point there are a lot of people that are now appreciating that in fact uh the dualism of scientific inquiry and psychology around meditation uh transpersonal experiences psychedelic experiences and basically anything really um is actually producing uh, its own um, errors and its own um, uh, missteps, and that we need a new paradigm that's non-dualistic. Uh, and so I think we'll continue having these problems, both at the clinical level, like we was originally started with, uh, and also these things are being worked out in the at the level of science that informs practice. And so even now, there are new paradigms. You know, one is called uh, neurophenomenology. And uh, neurophenomenology was started by a guy, well, a number of people, but one of the most famous is a guy named Francisco Varela. Uh, maybe you've heard of him before, yeah? Of course, yeah. And, uh, this was study, a student of uh, Chagyam Trungpa, even came to my campus. It's one of the wonderful things about being at Naropa is all the crazy people who pass it through. And so people even told me what he was like as a person. Actually, it's was really nice. People said it was a very uh, generous, loving person. Um, and uh, so, yeah, neurophenomenology is really attempting to address this inherent... Uh, uh, What is the right word? Epistemological problem, you know, that we're studying non-dualistic phenomena in a dualistic way, and so let us use both dualistic uh, methods, you know, that we have. You know, uh, maybe someday we'll have non-dualistic psychophysiological measures. I don't know. Maybe we will. That maybe one's based in chaos math or something. I don't know. Maybe there's some possibility of that. but mostly we have dualistic physiological measures now, you know, in studying in neuroscience and, and, and dualistic paradigms involving surveys and instruments. Did you experience, you know, uh, anxiety or not? Yes or no? That's the most dualistic, but usually it's, you know, like a rating scale. And even that is a dualistic paradigm You're trying to put a number to something. Um, but also let's actually open up and uh, ask people what they experience directly. And uh, like I was saying earlier, compare these two results. Because sometimes it's very interesting. We get this glimpse into the possibilities of human nature that where mind and body can be uh, not as dualistically related as we once thought. And then also it may call into question our theories about, like what does the sympathetic nervous system do? What does, uh, what is the nature of stress? does it have to do solely with uh, uh, you know, this kind of division of the autonomic nervous system? Or is it actually have something more to do with like the hypothalamus and how we're evaluating stress? Because how we evaluate stress is even as important. Like for instance, uh, there's great activations of the sympathetic nervous system when we're making love. And nobody calls that stressful. Well, maybe some people do actually come come to me for sex therapy. (laughs) But, uh, you know, generally speaking, everyone would like that, like uh, ice cream soda, ice cream soda, ice ice cream sundae, you know, people would like uh, sex. And yet that, as this shows us very high elevations of sympathetic nervous system, and people spend all day long sometimes thinking about sex, (laughs) thinking about this horribly stressful thing. That raises your heart rate, you know. Uh, (laughs) uh, And, you know, also denigrating it too, of course. Very strange. Um, So, yeah, that's how I I feel like this is going to be. This is a useful collision between the Dharma and um, dualistic science of mind coming from uh, psychology in general. And there are parts of the tradition, like when I'm involved with the transpersonal tradition, that uh from the very beginning not even uh because of the dharma uh, but because of other reasons and then also because so many transpersonal psychologists were influenced by the dharma like certainly my friend stan krippner certainly um oh that kills me charlie tart charlie tart uh that also uh you know study with uh, all kinds of rinpoches and things Uh, My friend Stan Krippner uh, knew Chagyam Trungpa and even heard one of his very first talks when he came to uh, Boston, you know. Uh, So, you know, certainly there's some uh, some of that influence, but even independently, a lot of these folks really were interested in less dualistic philosophy, even just because of the study of uh, philosophy in general. And so we're in this collision and there are certain parts of psychology that are embracing non-duality more than others. You know, transpersonal, anyone who studies altered states of consciousness from any paradigm generally now is thinking about something less dualistically than we once did. Well, not anyone, but most people. uh, There are still people occasionally do very dualistic studies of altered, altered states of consciousness. Usually people who didn't read the literature before they started their work. Uh, but, um, so I feel like, yeah, this is happening and I'm really glad to be a part of it. It's really, uh, exciting and nice. And, uh, this is, you know, kind of dovetailing back to the spiritual track of my life. I'm really loving the possibilities of, um, how, um, know the search for the truth in science is also, I feel uh this search for the truth in uh in spirituality in particular in, in you know how i approach the dharma know really feel like it is about that like searching for uh truth how can i be of most benefit to others you know and uh how can i understand the nature of my experience and what are its possibilities you know and uh so many wonderful questions is to me um uh, there is no uh mm, barrier between uh being involved in both of these things even though you know i do run into these kind of collisions with uh, with people over issues like this from time to time i see i find those collisions very interesting you know and, and I feel as long as like people don't like uh get upset, you know, that uh, uh, like we need to dualistically endorse this is the right view, you know, can we have some open space where we're saying yeah, these are the right questions, maybe we don't know the answer Uh, and I feel like in a Dzogchen way that even if we're just, you know, holding our confusion that you know, confusion may dawn as wisdom, (laughs) as they say like in the in you know, a you lineage, you know, grant your blessings in my mind, maybe one with the Dharma. And eventually, it's, you know, four Dharmas of Campbell. May confusion dawn as wisdom. And I feel like we're at that kind of stage, you know, and these collisions are very useful. And uh, people often call me out uh, on things that I have written uh, and ask me, you know, like, I, I, like you mentioned earlier, one of my recent papers, uh, which actually took me a really long time to write, it was like, I actually wrote that paper over like about 20 years. <laughs> you know, I was presenting versions of it at different conferences and getting feedback from people, from Dharma places, uh, Mind and Life Institute I presented once, and many, many hypnosis conferences, uh, many transpersonal and humanistic. So I presented that that paper like, I don't know, more than eight times. And before I finally felt like uh, I should write something, actually present the final version of it, or I don't know if it's not the final version, I guess, but at least some version that other people could read, you know, Uh, and uh, so, yeah, people often like say, you know, how can you say uh, Dzogchen has anything to do with hypnosis? You know, this is terrible, you know, and even like, Remind me you know, there's some kind of uh, commitment I made, you know, not to uh, mix dharmic terms with uh, um, understanding teachings of the dharma with other traditions. You know, like this actually is like some kind of perversion of the dharma. And like, whoa, whoa,
0: <laughs> you, know, hey, you know. These are Buddhists or uh, dharma <laughs> practitioners criticizing you for comparing Tzogchen to hypnosis, for example definitely yeah and i actually um i I
1: myself am happy when people say stuff like that to me i'm like wow here's someone who's like really good practitioner you know and um i will take what they're saying very seriously and so discuss this issue because uh you know um to be honest i don't actually feel like i need uh transpersonal psychology as much as i need my you know practice of Dzogchen. I feel like if I was forced to choose between the two things, I would say Dzogchen is more than enough, you know, and uh, there's more than I can learn about Dzogchen in my lifetime, you know, I was hoping that I had previous lifetimes that are giving me, you know, some, I don't know, karmic uh, proclivities for studying or something, that would be nice, and maybe I'm making more for future lives, I don't know, if there will be some, um, but uh on the other hand i feel like again like the zogchen teachings uh for me this essence of refined gold thing comes up again Mm -hmm. like and i feel like if i'm asking questions about these things but not actually saying now we're going to do hypnosis zogchen i am the rinpoche of (laughs) hypnosis zogchen tradition i am started the hypnotic zogchen tradition uh that would be for sure I'm laughing because that would be so wrong and uh it would actually if someone actually and probably someone
0: will do it I, I hope not you know it's a natural marriage it does lend itself to that combo I think yeah it does I
1: feel like it should occur as someone who's really realized you know uh I feel like it's different for someone who's really realized both traditions at a high level to bring that together and, Fine, I'm not that person, <laughs> I'm not that person. Maybe, maybe I am, I don't know, but uh, I don't think, I don't feel, uh, I don't know. I, I feel like uh, I wanna bring these two things together in terms of uh, studying the nature of the mind and asking questions. Um, but in terms of actually, uh, like I don't do it in my practice, You know, like uh, I do, people do come to see me who studies Ongchen, and people do come to see me for hypnosis that are Dzogchen practitioners. And so uh, I will actually teach them hypnosis, and uh, I will encourage them to continue studying their Dzogchen practice and working with their teachers. But I don't attempt to become a Dzogchen teacher because I'm not actually trained as a Dzogchen teacher. Uh, A little bit, I was empowered to teach, you know, things like Sa Lung and uh, kind of basic uh, practices. At one point, I was empowered to give Noondro, and I thought that was uh, too much, so I has not done. Uh, I think it was more a practical thing that I was like one of the few people <laughs> around, that you know, and wanted to have Nundro group, and I think Monk was just very generous, you know. Um, but, you know, I don't do things that I don't feel uh, like I have a real lineage of that, you know. So it's really out of respect for the lineage that I... Uh, I'm, I'm not bringing those things together, but what I am trying to do is to bring the philosophies of mind together because I feel like um, both the uh, Zogchen and uh, hypnotic tradition can benefit from this. Uh, that uh, Zogchen tradition can benefit in particular, uh, what I've argued with um, many translators of Dzogchen, uh, that their ability to translate Dzogchen is entirely dependent on psychological concepts, uh, con- constructs, you know, like the use of the word ego, for instance, you know, but it could be so much better. <laughs> there are so many wonderful transpersonal terms, particularly in the tradition of hypnosis, like we have all of these ideas that are so related to uh, uh, really profound and hard to discuss ideas in uh, Zogchen, particularly around like the creation of self and things like the um, uh, now a word is falling out of my head, Namche, Kunze uh, Namche, Kunze Namche, you know, you know, the storehouse and you know how um, this becomes, you know, like part of the formation of the illusory self and it comes through this. And uh, we have similar ideas in the hypnotic tradition of a neo-dissociation about how illusory selves are created as well. Uh, and so I think this is wonderful. Like this is great because, uh, you know, here are some of these words, like uh, one of the words in the hypnotic tradition is called, um, uh, so this comes from the neo-dissociation theory of Ernest Hilgard, who was a professor at Stanford, and never studied the Dharma ever. You know, he called uh, uh, that at the center of this illusory selves that we're creating was this structure called um, the executive cognitive control center, and that actually it was creating a kind of seamless display. It's strange, right? This is very so similar to Chen you know of that you were a unitary self, but in fact, you had all of these, what he called, um, what we would call sometimes call ego states now, but what his term for this was? Mm. He had a different term for it, but I'm not remembering at the moment, but it was basically different ego, ego structures, I think that's what he called it. That the self was made of many different parts and that there was this cognitive executive control center that actually gave you this illusion that you were one person even though you had all these different parts and so i was like Ah, my gosh you know here's some kunze namshi stuff you know this is maybe not exactly the same but these concepts uh, are could be useful you know for translators in the same way that you know we got the use of ego word ego so much and you know there could be some difficulty in all these things but i still think there's some potential benefit for translators of the Dharma to be knowledgeable about the most advanced non-dualistic science of the mind that we have in uh, Western psychology and counseling. Uh, And on the other hand, what's much more straightforward is uh, I think to say is that people in uh, Western counseling and psychology can completely benefit from knowing about these traditions and practicing them while they are scientists in the West as well. And I think this is, you know, already happening. This, not just me, there's so many people doing this. Uh, and some people even gone through huge evolutions because of this. Like one of my favorite is uh, uh, Richard Davidson. You know, is one of these mm-hmm. scientists that I've known for a long time. Uh, I even uh, once uh, interviewed him back in 1994, before he started really getting involved with a lot of this, uh, he had just started to get involved with His Holiness of Dalai Lama meditation projects. And I don't know if you know this, but recently Richard Davidson has completely gone, uh, what some people say like off the deep end, he's now even looking at uh, you know the rainbow body and how he can study the rainbow body phenomena using dualistic scientific methods. And, I would hazard to guess he's probably also collecting some stories and phenomenological methods, stuff which he would never have done. When I like first met him, he was completely dualistic uh, scientist, but you know, seriously interested in the Dharma. And it clearly made a difference in his life. And so this, I mean, this guy's at the top, you know, he's, uh, if anybody I know i ever met in, uh, you know, uh, science of mind at wins a Nobel prize, it might be him. You know, he's a really amazing guy, did great research, uh, helped many people, and he's done really wonderful things. Uh, And uh, he has evolved the Dharma, his practice of the Dharma has evolved him as well to this point where now he's even willing, I guess at the end of his career, to look at some transpersonal things that ordinarily, uh, the people would say, this is not, you know, part of the discipline of science. These things should not be studied. All the naughty things that we study in transpersonal psychology, these crazy tricksters.
0: (laughs) I would love to perhaps do a part two and go into that in a little more detail because you have several papers actually on on that theme. Yeah. Some very, very interesting uh, details in those papers that I'd like to ask you a bit more about. I know you have a hard stop. So, in the time that we have left. Yeah. I wonder if it would be possible to, we left you at this, your first datum that you've been tricked into. All right, yeah. <laughs> I wonder if we could perhaps finish the spiritual arc and then perhaps in part two, look at your your work with empathy and also look at these comparisons you've been making between Buddhism primarily and hypnosis and, and these sorts of things.
1: Thank you. Uh, yeah, really, I, I must say, uh, just to give you some feedback, you're an amazing interviewer. Uh I really thank you for the mirroring uh, and also uh, your deep appreciation for what I would love to share with folks. It's really is very kind of you. You're a wonderful. Thank you. thank you. And I'd love to do a second part with you. And I, I love your plan too. So I'll, I'll stick to that and uh, go back to discussing the spiritual arc. Uh, so yeah, I had, that was a really powerful retreat for me. Uh, that one that Robin tricked me into, and uh, I had, you know, really started to feel more comfort with myself and really noticed how meditation um, was becoming less and less an idealistic thing to me and more a genuine experience of space, you know, <laughs> not the outer one, but, you know, really the inner space, I guess, I don't know. Actually, this space exists everywhere. It is both outer and it's not dualistic. Um, but uh, while I was on that retreat, um, I was really suffering a lot because uh, I was married at, at the time and uh, the marriage was not going well. And um, I decided that on that retreat, I was you know, going to maybe make a decision about whether I should continue in this marriage or not. And then while I was on the retreat, actually, uh, my wife decided for me <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, well, it was kind of, it was mutual. I won't say she decided, but it was mutual. And actually we're still very good friends uh, today. And, and, and I mean, we don't talk a lot, but you know, I, I feel a lot of love and compassion for her. And also, she's been very kind to me throughout my life since then. But we did decide we was going to get divorced and, uh, uh, So it was really powerful processing this Uh, and at the end of the retreat I had this sudden astonishing feeling to me uh, which was uh, I started to get more of this kind of um, experience of the illusion of the world and it happened through the most ordinary of of things it was that i was at breakfast one morning maybe it was like in the third week or something and someone uh brought to me an orange and just handed it to me because this was all being done in silence uh and someone just hands to me an orange you know and i was like oh you know orange you know and looking at the orange you know and suddenly i noticed the orange wasn't orange you know <laughs> I was like actually but I looked at the orange, there was little yellow spots, you know. I was like, oh, orange is not orange, you know. How interesting. And then uh, I opened it up and began to eat it. And that was the most delicious orange I'd ever experienced up in, until that point. It, it just, I put it in the mouth and the taste of the citrus just explode on my tongue and the sweetness. And the bitterness at the same time and the delicious uh, flesh of the orange felt good on the teeth. And I was like, oh, this orange is heaven. And I immediately got up after I finished and ran into the kitchen and wrote on a piece of paper, because I'm not supposed to talk, where did this orange come from? <laughs> you know, I had to learn what was the amazing orange, you know, where did they buy this? Some special Dharma orange or something, I don't know, it comes from, you know, the Shambhala jungle or something, I have no idea, you know, I thought it was a special orange. And then this guy like looked at me and it's kind of like, and then he's just like, you know, pointed and he, I follow him into a storm, just a gigantic bag of oranges, you know, it's just normal. I don't remember the brand, but it was a brand I recognized, maybe it was Sunkist or something. Uh, and it's just all of us like, And then he just walked away and I'm just looking at this big bag of orange and I was like convinced this was the best orange that I had ever eaten. There was something so special about it. And then suddenly it occurred to me actually what had happened, um, which was actually orange was always special. You know, this quality of orange, maybe, you know, in some more or less are good oranges, you know, you know, but what made the biggest difference was uh, how I was eating it without any interference about my expectation of orange and even seeing, finally seeing it that actually orange wasn 't orange you know and really tasting it as it as it is so to speak, and so I started to get this experience of how much my own mind uh, was uh, involved with um, interpreting the world and creating an illusion of the world, even in something as so small as an orange, and that actually my mind was involved in all parts of how I was experiencing this world, even in this moment, you know, as I look at my hands and all kinds of, you know, I, I have never lived in reality. That's what, one of the things I love to say to my uh, clients and students, you know, is like um, one of the great pleasures in studying hypnosis and the Dharma is in learning being freed from this illusion of you know reality and uh and particularly the tyranny of the self you know like needing to be like another thing i often tell my students is like, what use is a what, what what use is a ego if you can't fuck with it you know and what what you know and i, I have never lived in reality you know no one really has either of these things you know um And so that moment really kind of brought me back to some of these uh, moments that I had as a child with the lucid dreaming and the um, near-death experience, but in a way that was so grounded, you know, and so gentle uh, and so simple that it, it seems a little easier to hold on to. It's not like, something you just experience in a weird moment while you're sleeping or dying. <laughs> you know, it's actually right here, right now, every moment, like you're something as simple as an orange, you could experience this quality of the illusion of reality. And what had brought me to that point was simply just trying to experience myself so simply, just noticing my experience of myself in meditation and just allowing all the parts to come through. And here is where I was very lucky in that um, Robin Korman had showed me many films of Chagyam Trungpa Rinpoche that he had, you know, and that now actually you can see a lot of these, you know, in the Chagyam Trungpa archives. And most of the time that uh, Trungpa discussed meditation, he kind of taught in a more, uh, Chen, like manner like he had this whole thing about he called minding the gap you know it was talking about the space between breathing when like nothing is particularly going on like minding that gap and what I hadn't really realized was um how how much I could be like pointing out until later I received pointing out instruction and uh, then I was like wow and that's really amazing you know someone's into the nature of my mind, I was like, damn, this feels familiar. I was like, oh, how about that, a damn old jargium trumper ricochet, you know, teaching like this, you know, in in a way that really uh, helped me, you know, I really appreciated that. I came back from that uh, retreat and uh, that was when I really started uh, to start trying to do some writings comparing psychology and particularly humanistic philosophy to the dharma and uh, really devoted myself like this, I'm doing these two things for sure. You know, I'm gonna keep being this uh, hypnosis researcher and uh, transpersonal researcher and keep being a Dharma practitioner. Uh, Really uh, cemented that and, uh, you know, kind of continuing. Eventually, I think I mentioned, uh, I became kind of dissatisfied with the Shambhala lineage. Part of it was just this unfortunate truth that and Trungpa Rinpoche was dead. And Dilgo um, Kensei was dead. And other people that had been like the senior teachers in the lineage uh, that had died. Uh, you know, some of the other Kazu teachers that had helped uh, had died. And um, I was dissatisfied with uh, the way that folks were trying to preserve the Shambhala lineage of Trungpa Rinpoche's teachings by trying to integrate it with the separate track that he had created because he had created a separate track you know for people who just wanted to study the pure you know <laughs> pure <laughs> uh, um, kaju teachings enigma teachings you know that's a I don't know that's the kind of dualistic way I guess I understood it and I didn't really like so much the Shambhala teachings, um, in particular because of the kind of people that were interested in them. (laughs) It didn't feel like a good Sangha feeling to me. Like people would actually say, at least in Milwaukee, I don't know if they people, I doubt people are still like this actually, that they, they didn't want to study the Buddhist teachings. They only wanted the Shambhala teachings so they could continue feeling like a good Christian. I was like, oh, that's so icky to me. <laughs> I was like, what are you talking about? You know, I don't think that's even right. But it was just all this thing, that people actually like not wanting to get the Dharma teachings. I was like, what is wrong with you? You know, you should like all of this, you know. Uh and so I didn't like that. And then the real nail in the coffin for me was that uh uh you know, the Sakyang, his, his son and the heir to his uh shambhala lineage not only did they force everyone into the shambhala track by integrating everything which you know could have been a good thing i think if in another context though it wasn't for me um but i met him and it didn't go well <laughs> you know, it was like uh, i met him and he wasn't much older than me actually and um so i uh I saw him teach meditation and I wanted very much to like, you know, but I, I really found fault with the way he taught meditation. It didn't seem to be very useful to me. It seemed like he was really emphasizing precision in practice that seemed to me again, like creating this kind of illusory self that has pure selective attention and that never has, you know, gaps in it or anything. You know, it's like perfect and, uh it's like, wow man, this is like really tight. I don't find any space in this. You know, it's like feels I don't know, I didn't find any, but it felt it didn't feel good to me. And I didn't feel like he could be my teacher. And then I was like, Oh well that sucks because he's like the whole head of this thing. And I was like, What the hell do I do? Um you know, and then I don't know, I just didn't feel like he was a realized teacher and I and was one of the things that I had, Learned from practicing with Robin was that he said, you know, at some point you're going to want to study with a, you know, a a guru, and you know, uh, it should be someone that you, you know, really feel has some level of realization and uh, someone that you can really relate to. The other thing was, uh, like Trungpa Rinpoche, he had inherited this anti-rock and roll attitude. And I remember him like really criticizing rock and roll during his talk. And I was like, well, I guess that's cute and all that. He says the same thing as his dad, but I don't know. It just seemed like totally uncool. Fuck this. I'm not doing this. You know, it's like, didn't even give good meditation instruction. It's really uh, a bad thing. Cause um, I feel like uh, the circumstance under which I met him, I later learned, you know, he'd been pulled off this big retreat with Dogo Kensei. And uh, he was actually very ill uh, when I saw him. He had some kind of flu or something like that. I don't know, maybe it was jet lag too. And so I basically, when I saw him in those early days, this is like 1996 or something. um, He was like at his worst, you know. And in fact, he was coughing throughout the whole thing. So he was really sick. So maybe I shouldn't have judged as quickly as I did although it really worked out given the history of that organization for me. Um, and also I want to say that I saw him um, two more times since then, but I did leave the lineage uh, right about then uh, after talking to Robin. And um, I saw him two more times and actually he gave fine Dharma talks, you know. Um, again, not my not my style of, you know, my style is more Glenn Bolin, you know, <laughs> someone with big, you know, openness and space and heart, you know. Uh, Tenzin Wangyal Rinpoche is definitely got these characteristics, though they're a little less obvious, you know, he's a very non-dualistic, playful, humorous mind, you know. Uh, Nima Rinpoche, uh, and then uh, Geshe Yungdrung Rinpoche, uh, who I studied with, uh, all of these people very open, loving, playful, open to experience, kind of thing. And always I experience him as uh, Sakyong is a little more, you know, to me closed. But he give fine talks, you know. And um, even I ran a marathon. He was in actually, <laughs> and we both ran this marathon. He beat me by over an hour. <laughs> you know, is really amazing runner. Uh, wrote a book about. Uh, running with the mind and meditation too. So I don't know, for those uh, who enjoy Seok-yong, uh, uh I, think, I think, and got benefit from his teachings, then I, I respect for sure. Uh, you know, this horrible scandal involving uh, his uh, sexual behavior and this kind of thing is you know, really sad. Um, so I feel like I'm glad that it, there was a, some wiseness in my decision not to continue. Um, I think he was pushed into that role as being a teacher too early. They should have let him finish his training with Dilgo Kensei. And I think it was very sad that he was even pulled off a retreat, you know, to begin that role. It was not an auspicious way to begin as a Dharma king, I guess, you know, uh, not fully trained like a Luke Skywalker going after, <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> Darth Vader. Uh, at any rate, um, So after uh, I had the discussion with Robin, I was like, uh, what do I do? I don't think Sakyan can be my teacher. He's like, Oh, I totally understand. And, you know, why don't you go around and, you know, and he recommended a few teachers to me. He recommended, maybe I think about Namki Norbu. And, uh, so I went to go see him. He's teaching about lucid dreaming and things. And, um, that really fit for me and I like, um, and uh, actually, there's a, a very strange story that I could tell. Uh, it would actually take more than <laughs> the time
0: that I have left. <laughs> uh, okay, well, I how would, about this? Okay, yeah. It would take more than the time you've got left. We, we could leave it as a cliffhanger and pick okay. up. If, yeah. if you're out of time, Then I'd, be, I'd love to continue uh, in a separate interview rather than rush the story. Okay great yeah and just to
1: heighten the cliffhanging part of this uh uh it was through Roberto Sanchez uh who had started uh, you know this remake group and i think is still going actually it is still going i uh, occasionally get you know uh things um that i heard of uh, a a whose name i won't mention just yet <laughs> who would give uh um a kind of um, What is the right way to say this? I actually don't know the name of the ritual, but it was a a, a prediction ritual Maybe I'll, I'll go and look and look it up, but he would give this ritual using a burning mirror, you know fire and mirror and uh, protector practice um, And he would make predictions for you about who you should study with and then uh Not only did he give me a prediction, but then a number of very uh, amazing things happened that totally changed my whole uh, mindset about what I should do. Uh, Very strange uh, experiences. (laughs) It it wasn't just the information he gave me, it led to very strange things involving even (laughs) years later. a failed attempt to enter a very mountainous part of Sikkim <laughs> and not making it <laughs> and almost getting killed but uh, so, yeah, I've received very powerful predictions which again,
0: I'm happy to share a little bit about this. That's quite a cliffhanger Yeah <laughs> well, <laughs> So in, until then Dr. Ian Vikramasekra thank you very much Oh well, thank you so much Thank you so much, it was such a wonderful time with you Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.